0: Hey everyone, welcome to Orange Crushing It, a weekly series dedicated to high drive, passionate and motivated individuals. I'm your host, Frank Clark, President and CEO of V Mr. Orange. This shows a weekly dose of business, life and personal development principles geared toward bringing out the adrenaline junkie and overachiever in each and every one of you. As a seasoned entrepreneur of over five companies producing hundreds of millions in revenue, I'm going to personally be sharing my stories of success and, of course, my life-defining massive (laughs) screw-ups, as well as featuring inspiring guests, business leaders, athletes, thrill seekers who just truly want to walk their talk and make life happen. Stick around, and let's get crushing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Orange Crushing It. Today... I get to interview the epitome of one of the features of a true orange. And what is a true orange? A true orange in the spiral dynamic spectrum of levels of consciousness is somebody that understands that to contribute to others' success is how you become successful. And I have the epitome of contribution, of contributor with me today. I have the distinct pleasure of of interviewing Carolyn cushman Desena. I've met Carolyn, or CD as she goes in our group. As part of a, a networking thing, it kind of just groomed out of a seminar that I was in in New Jersey called Unblinded, and that evolved into getting to know a guy named Rob, and then I had to get to know Carolyn. Carolyn is just incredible, and, and I have a bio on her that's like a million pages long. And, and you know what? All of it is amazing. It's amazing. She is the founder of We Forum, which is a female-led organization devoted to raising community awareness on how to live a healthy lifestyle, and. She makes programs, wellness programs, that are accessible to everyone in the community. She is the definition of philanthropic. She's a board member on the 52nd Street Project, which helps underprivileged kids living in Hell's Kitchen. She was part of a a group called Wise Up, which is a teen advocacy group, a fit crawl, step up, uh, advocating change for tomorrow. She's involved in her own investments. She's involved with a company called VPO and Excision Biotherapeutics, which uh, treat and cures life-threatening diseases caused by viral infections, including AIDS. She is born in Singapore, raised all over Asia, and takes personal pride in health and health-related issues. You know, Having lived in these parts of the world, she graduated and started working in Wall Street, and at 27 years old, was termed the crusher. Now, how could I not have the crusher on my show? It's called Orange Crushing It, and I have the female crusher. Carolyn, Welcome to Orange Crushing It. There's so much I want to talk to you about all of this. Welcome, The Crusher.
1: Hey, Frank. Thank you so much. I am so thrilled and honored and so excited to be here today with you. This is great. I love what you're doing.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. And you, as I said, embody the whole crushing it, Orange Crushing It movement, which is all about people being driven and passionate and excited about life and just wanting to get the the most zest out of every single day that they can and understanding, again, that contribution is the key to success. And again, you you're you're part of that. Now, just take me back a little bit, okay? Yes. You're 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 born in Singapore, right? You live in Indonesia, and you have a passion for health. How did, how did all that kind of come together?
1: Okay, so I was born I was born in Singapore. I lived in Vietnam for two and a half years. Um, I have incredible memories of riding on the back of my grandfather's moped through the streets of Saigon, actually. And I have memories of squatting and eating bowls of rice with sugarcane, you know, in my grandparents' home, and the memories are just incredible. But my mother and I left Vietnam in nineteen seventy five a couple of months before the Vietnamese coup before the North Vietnamese came down and overtook uh, Saigon. And I remember we were not with my mother's family because we were in Singapore at that point. My mother actually went, To the airport, and she tried to get on the very last plane heading for Vietnam. And a CIA agent came and actually snatched that passport out of her hand and just disappeared. And my mother sat there, and she obviously, she watched the last plane leave, thinking that she would never see her mother and father and all of her brothers and sisters again. It was a really tragic and sad day for her. And after the plane left, he actually came back, gave it back to her, and he spoke to her in Vietnamese and said, if I'd let you on that plane because you are a U.S. citizen, um, they would have cut your head off. And so it probably saved my mother's life. You know, at the time, my father was a naval soldier. So he had spent two tours of duty, which if we think about that, how many soldiers actually did two tours of duty in Vietnam? And my father did two. And after two tours of duty, he actually was a civilian officer in charge of all the logistics coming in out of Saigon. So he had transitioned from the military to the oil business. And so that sort of began my experience living in Indonesia. Malaysia, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Bor- Borneo, Tarakan. Uh, we ended up in Bandu Aceh, which is where the tsunami hit many years ago. I don't, I don't remember that huge yeah. tsunami, mm-hmm. but um, that's yeah, it was devastating. But that's where our our U.S. compound was, or Western compound was 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 there. And um, I had. So much experience traveling the world, visiting all of these different countries and cultures and people, really being introduced to food, introduced to poverty, introduced to wealth, introduced to the differences amongst everyone. I mean, you name an Asian city. I mean, I'd I'd been to the Middle East, to Europe, um, to Asia, and I just was able to see so much as a child. India, you know, living in Indonesia alone the differences in the wealth and the socioeconomic differences amongst the people there. It's just, you don't understand it when you're little, but when you grow up, you're kind of like, wow, you know, I was able to see so much. And so I think that that part of my upbringing and background and the experiences of getting into the culture, the food, the people that my parents gave to me was a part of me being a contributor me being someone who I just, I want to give, I want to fix, I want to help. And I I think I was like that from a very early age, even in high school, but I definitely was like that when I became a young adult, I always wanted to be contributing and I always wanted to be giving and into my thirties, I I was doing more of that. So. Yeah.
0: It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful trait that you have. It's a beautiful quality that you have. It's very endearing. And, you know, I, I, I get it because we're somewhat spoiled here in the West. Right. And to travel is to experience life and it's to experience people and it's to experience really, you know, not to say that it's better here or worse there. It's just different. And the people are different and the people, you know, are loving at their own level. And right. you do get an appreciation for things like running water in a shopping mall and, you know, no you know, lighting and certain medicine, certain different things that, you know, we take for granted over here. So, anybody who's listening here, I hope that if if nothing else you take away from this, get on a plane. As soon as this pandemic is done and go see the world, go understand other people on this planet, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's what I intend to do with my children. We actually had, you know, I felt like they were old enough to take a trip overseas. We had a trip planned to go to Thailand this summer, but unfortunately we have to wait. And so I'm hoping that we'll be able to do that next year but just to immerse these kids into a different culture where there are differences amongst the people. I just, I'm really looking forward to doing it. I also had plans to take my children to India with another friend of mine and, you know, just giving them those experiences. I feel like so many of us living in the United States kind of live in a little bit of a bubble and it's fine. The bubble is great. And, you know, we're very protective and loving and nurturing towards our family. And we want to do everything that we can, you know, to make sure that we give the best we can to our children. But I just sort of feel like there's a little part of me because I had that experience. You know, I feel like so many of my friends are afraid. They don't want to travel, you know, to Thailand because they're scared. And for me, like I think about it, I've been to Thailand probably like 10 or 12 times. And I feel like when I land, I know exactly what to do. And I've been there even on my own, you know, as a, a an individual, not like traveling with the group or anything like that. And um, I kind of feel like it's like going to New York City. There's, There's no difference. But I think that when you don't have that opportunity to travel overseas, especially to really super foreign countries, not even countries that are like yours, you know, maybe like in Europe, but to places where the language is completely different and the streets and the people and how they live culturally are so different. People aren't generally, there's fear there and they're generally afraid and they don't do it. And I just recommend, you know, to eliminate that fear and just go, like you said, and see the world because it is... Really amazing. It's so impactful and it really changes the way you know you look at yourself and the things that you do and the things that you can do for others and how other people are living in the world. It just really it's um it's an eye-opener.
0: Oh, it really is. I remember the first time I went to China, I'm going to Huangpu in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, wait a minute. Not only do I not know where I'm going, but the chinese dialect and the chinese writing okay what do i do i go to the little tree with the house see this business card that says take me to the house tree is that a dog is that a what is that number symbol (laughs) point i couldn't read anything i couldn't read shit i'm like (laughs) you know
1: i I, for some reason when i was in college i decided that japanese was going to be my language and i took Uh, japanese so while japanese is not exactly like chinese The Japanese alone have three different alphabets, hiragana, katakana, and then there's kanji. Kanji has over 3,000 characters. So what you're talking about, you know, in the Chinese language, which I don't know how many characters there are, but, you know, one character can mean an entire sentence. It can mean an entire poem, you know, so much. Uh, It's pretty detailed and complex. It's pretty crazy.
0: (laughs) Anybody that understands Chinese or any American that decides to go take Chinese lessons or whatever? power to you because I I worked in Chinatown and I remember, you know, sometimes to talk to people, they tried to teach me a little bit and just the inflection of your voice went from the word woman and the word horse. I was like, huh? Uh, I'm either calling you a horse or I'm calling you a woman. And I don't (laughs) want to mess that up. Right. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, I'm going to get a translator. Anyhow, (laughs) Carolyn, again, very philanthropic. Your life has been from wall street to you know, now you're investing in businesses and companies. I gotta know. I gotta know because, you know, you are the crusher. And I never really heard the story of how working on Wall Street and basically setting up offices in London for your firm, right? How did you become the crusher? And especially in a male it's fairly male dominated, right? Isn't it? I mean Wall Street is a, a lot of male energy, a lot of tough Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's part. It's partly why I got my my nickname. But I'll tell you a little bit about how I got there. So I wanted to be an actress. growing Up, I was in theater, dance. Wanted. I spent um, when I went to college, I was a radio, television, and film major because instead of studying acting, I said, you know, maybe I should study something that can actually pay my paycheck while I'm trying to act. So I thought that learning the behind-the-scenes radio, television, film, becoming a producer, a writer, a director, working behind the set would actually be my fallback. So when I was a sophomore, I drove myself to L.A. It was 1992, one month after the L.A. riots, May of 92. And I got myself an apartment on the beach. And, you know, this is, this is what I find to be so interesting is I got all these internships Um, I worked for production companies. I worked on the Martin Lawrence show. I worked for Mo Money, um, did something for the Wayans brothers, had lots of opportunities. And I come from a very middle-class background. You know, my parents did not have, they didn't know people. They didn't know people who knew people who knew people. And so I had no one to ask (laughs) to do anything for me. I didn't say, hey, dad, can you call so-and-so and get me an internship? I literally had to meet people. And it's so funny. I was talking to someone. I was really setting up my own little ecosystem merger back when I was in high school into college and really just willing to do anything to meet anybody to get to where I needed to go because no one was going to do it for me. And so I had all these internships uh, working in LA. The following summer was my junior summer. I decided that I wanted to give a try in New York City and I wanted to decide which city to live in. And so I didn't have a job, I found a place to stay, went there with a couple of friends, put on a pair of rollerblades and started of rollerblading the city. Once again, didn't know anybody, didn't have a job, didn't have anything, rollerbladed through the city looking for a film set. I found one because, you know, New York City has all the film sets during the summer. And went up to a Teamster who's not really working on the show. They're the guys who actually pack up all the trucks and all the equipment which is very important but I asked the team staff, say hey you know I really I want a job what can I do I'm willing to work for free I just want to learn um, they interviewed me and I was very very lucky to have been given the opportunity to work on that set that was a movie called Fresh and it was directed by Boaz Yakin who went on to do remember the Titans it was produced by uh, Lawrence Bender who uh, also did Reservoir Dogs and Remember the Titans. So lucky me, um, I have this incredible opportunity to work with really notable um, people working in the industry. But had I not done things like that and said, I want, I need, I'm looking for, and I'm willing to ask, I would have gotten it because it wasn't just going to happen for me. It wasn't just, I was going to sit in my dorm literally just waiting And so what happened was, is that I actually met some people who were working on, in Wall Street, who were traders on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. And I was at the time deciding, am I going to live in LA or live in New York? And I said, you know, I think New York is where I want to be. It kind of feels a little bit more like me. He said, you know, hey, instead of coming to New York and waiting tables and, you know, going from gig to gig, why not get a job working on the floor temporarily for about eight months, six to eight months? get some money, uh, you know, pay for your furniture, and then you can always quit and go back to doing what you're doing. I said, you know, that's interesting, why not? I'll, I'll give it a go, let's see what happens. I mean, <laughs> they're never gonna hire me. So I went down, I interviewed for Spear Leeds and Kellogg for a job on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, and I actually interviewed with Stu Sternberg, who was a partner of the firm, and he ran the floor operations, and this is derivatives, which is all options, and just not, not just stock, but it's options. It's, it's, a, it's a step up, it's a little bit more complicated. Oh, yeah. And he actually today is the owner of the Tampa Bay Rays and he manages it actively. So I'm very, I'm very proud that he was my actual first boss, but I went down and I did all this math. He asked me to add and subtract fractions like thirteen fifteen, you know, 13, sixteenths plus a quarter or three quarters plus five sixteens, 16s or seven 16s plus seven, you know, seven 16s. And I'd have to do all this math really quickly in my head. And I think I passed and he asked me some more questions and, you know, he like that about me. Um, I don't know. What about the interview? You know, he actually said that he liked working with women. He liked working with men who knew how to do math. And he felt like having someone who weren't, what didn't have sort of the education and background and training for training was something that he could work with because he actually wanted to take someone who had a fresh slate, fresh mind, do the math. And he wanted to train him, train them himself. So I have that going for me because, you know, I'd never taken any business courses, Although I felt like I was, I was smart, but I didn't take any business classes in school. And he hired me right then and there. And within a month, it was January uh, 17, 1994, I was 21 years old and I was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. I was actually an wow. assistant specialist to start. And I was there. I okay. had a very quick training. I worked with all of these men hollering and screaming at me on a daily basis and I think there were probably only about five, maybe maybe 10% of the people on the floor were women. And we were mostly clerks working behind the scene, you know, assistants. There were very few women traders, very few women brokers. Although I remember, you know, Monica Triozzi, she was a badass trader on, on she was a broker actually on the floor. But I had to adapt and I had to not be afraid. And when they were screaming at me, I had to not take it personally because it wasn't about me. It was about the intensity of the moment when the stock market is moving up and down. Things get really crazy. Brokers are coming into the crowd screaming and hollering trades. And I was the one behind the podium that had to basically you know, take down names of everybody who was trading and know who was trading with which broker. And so I had to scream a lot. I had to yell a lot. I had to get, I needed to be heard. I needed to be seen. I needed people to know who I was because if I had a question, they weren't leaving my pit until I knew what their badge number was, how much they did and what they did. It was my job to record it and enter it into the system. And so there was a part of me where I had to eliminate that fear First and foremost. Sure. And I almost had to be tough enough. I, I hate to say it, but tough enough like a man to be in a world where it was really dominated by men and not be afraid to speak up and to be just like them.
0: Yeah, I mean when you watch the, you, yeah, when you watch TV, right? And you watch our movie Sensationalize Wall Street, it's all yelling and screaming and fast it's and ad this, buy, sell, do, boom, 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 right. And if you're not dynamic you're going to get lost. You're, oh, gonna you're
1: get, totally going to get lost. Get and so, right. And so my nickname came because my name, my maiden name is Cushman, Carolyn mm-hmm. Cushman. And so someone just said, you're crushing it. And then it became the crusher because I was not going to let anyone take advantage, take me down, yell and scream at me without me putting them in their place. I defended myself. I stuck up for myself, but I don't want to say that they were doing that to hurt me. I was just saying that from a business and professional perspective, I wasn't going to let another man sort of, you know, look at me like I'm some 21 year old mousy woman, you know, who was trying to be polite, but yet no one else was really super polite and everyone, you know, so I needed them to know that, Hey, I'm here and I'm just like you. Don't take advantage of me. And, yeah. stop. and so that that. You were the big
0: hey, <laughs> voice. You were the big, look, look, I believe, and you said this earlier, you a like, of, oh, I, I got lucky right? I'm roller skating in and I get this part. No, you create, promote, or allow everything in your life. That's what I believe. Create, promote, or allow everything. There's no, yes, is there some element of luck sometimes and things, you know, the synchro destiny. I happen to be at this place at the right time. Yes, but you created, promoted, or allowed that opportunity to happen. That's how you got there. That's how you became the crusher. That's how you got the the gig in the show, right? Okay. Who's roller skating up to? I, I, I've yet to see somebody roller skating around here in Tampa Bay looking for a job. <laughs> But if they were, you'd have to give them credit, right? You'd have to pay attention to people like that. Have to.
1: The funny thing is I talk a lot, you know, I really believe in the universe, even more so today. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And in terms of what the universe does for us. And I I often feel like we spend so much time, you know, looking and searching, A, either for that right moment or being fully prepared or reading a few books before you do something. And I feel like the universe really just gives us everything that we need to know and do. And it gives it to us right in front of our face, but we often can't see it. You know, we're always searching for something bigger or better or more or, you know, or something else. And, and really, it, it gives it to you right in the platter in front of your face. And I think that what happened for me is that I am lucky enough to have been able to recognize those moments in my life where opportunities were given to me, where Maybe I wasn't prepared. Maybe I wasn't ready, but I took it anyways. It was given to me. And I said, you know what, let's just go for it. Let's just try, see what happens because you never know. And I never wanted to look over my shoulder and ever have any regrets about not going after an opportunity and say I could have, would have, should have. And so I took it and I felt like, well, if I don't like it, I can always say no later. But the universe handed me those opportunities and I just kept on going and, and just went with it. And it was the right decision and the right move for me. I, I, I don't regret any of this, the decisions that I made. And the crazy thing is, I don't know how I started out, you know, wanting to be an actress and being in the film business that then ended up on Wall Street, but it, it definitely worked out. And yeah. the universe called for it. And I, I just followed.
0: <laughs> you know, that's a, it, it's a tall, but it's a beautiful statement when you just said that the universe called out for me, right? Yeah. Now as overachievers, and I remember, you know, being in my twenties and thirties, I wasn't looking at it as the universe. I was calling it me. You know, the, a lot of these overachievers, and I happen to be one of them, you know, I didn't, I didn't put a lot of stock. I wish I had, I wish I had put more stock and faith in the universe, but I always felt, and I guess if you grew up in the Northeast, right, you're a Northeast girl now, right? Yes, you know, I am. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that, that energy up in the Northeast is you take no prisoners, you, you eat what you kill, you go, 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 go right? So yes. where in, the, in your life did you go where did you learn that? What, who, was it a pivotal moment? Was it a, you know, was it someone, someone that you, you in, that inspired you? When did you go, it's the universe, man. That's, you know, I got to pay attention.
1: I didn't know it was the universe. I don't think until just recently. But in looking back, I kind of felt like, God, you know, the universe has been with me the entire time. And the universe has been giving me, you know, all of these signs and all of these these opportunities. And thank God I took many of them. Some of them I didn't. And, you know, that's fine too. But I just realized, you know, probably three or four years ago that the universe had been giving this to me the whole time. But in terms of like where that came from, I think just growing up and watching my mother. So while my mother was a U.S. citizen, she was still an immigrant. You know, she came here with broken English Although she was very well educated, she actually, my mother worked for the Phoenix, Phoenix Project for the United States government oh, really? um, in Vietnam, which is a huge, big, top secret CIA project. I think it was a CIA project. And she was interpreting um, Vietnamese documents for the government. And she was very, very educated and um, very strong. And when she came here to the United States, I watched that woman. Even though she was a citizen, like I said, we lived like we were immigrants because that's, I think, how she was treated, even though she was a citizen. And I watched that woman work, you know, her finger to the bone, waking up every morning at five, going to bed at 10. And it was like, you know, I think Rob Gill once said, rinse and repeat. And she had multiple businesses. She had a nail salon. She had a convenience store. My family uh, actually came over. She had, it had taken her like almost ten years to have her family come over from Vietnam, um, and they came here. I think around 1984, 1985. My mother helped to support them, give them their start in life. They came over here with you know one suitcase with no English, and today they are literally living the American dream. They all have wonderful homes and cars and children who went to private universities. And they did that on their own. Again, no one opened up the door for them. I guess with the exception of my mother, who had the knowledge, the willpower, the tenacity, the determination to own multiple businesses, you know, to help her family. You know, I remember at one point we were like maybe 14, 15 people living in one home. It was great. You know, my aunt, Slept on the floor, you know, in my bedroom. Now, looking back, I kind of wish that I had maybe, you know, switched that around. But we were, they were sleeping wherever there was room in the house, you know, people would be sleeping. But everyone had this amazing support. So, watching my mother work that hard to help and support other people and to really help and support me again, remember, I had no doors, I had no. So no doors and no opportunity, but my mother worked so hard so that she could give me a certain life, send me to school. You know, I think I'm the first person to ever in my mother's family and not in my father's, but in my mother's family to go to university and to go to, to college And so that burning desire and that want and need started very early on that fire to want something came from my mother to that work ethic came Mm -hmm. from my mother. You know, my mother, you know, she taught me the value of a dollar and I was not given everything that I wanted. And so because she said no, a lot meant that I wanted yes, a lot, you know, she said no all the time. And I was like, "Mm -mm, no, 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 I want yes. And so I wasn't going to let that stop me. I wanted this. I wanted that. I wanted money for this and money for that. I wanted opportunities. I wanted to go on vacation. I wanted to do all these things. And because I wanted all that, I feel like I had this burning desire and this passion inside me that I was going to get those things. If she wasn't going to help me and other people, then I'm going to do it myself. And so that I think is a part of, watching her, the values and the lessons that I learned from her, you know, sort of helped propel me into having sort of that drive and determination to do the things that, you know, I did. And it made me not afraid to keep asking. I was a little bit, I guess, tenacious, I guess is oh, yeah. what people might use. So I wasn't going to take no for an answer. If you weren't going to give it to me, I'll find somebody else. And so keep going.
0: <laughs> That's the crusher. That's yeah. the crusher, right? Yeah. Did your mom call you the crusher too?
1: No, but she liked the name. She, I lived with that name for, for many years in my 20s, and she really liked it. She thought it was a fun name. But I, I became Kush later on in my life. But when I was 27, I left the floor. I asked them to leave the floor, and I wanted to have a different experience. I wanted to actually work in front of clients. I felt, I felt like this pull and this need to be talking with people and helping people and talking with clients. And that helping part, you know, really is what I did in sales. You know, I helped my clients help get them what they need, uh, help fill their needs, help fill their gaps. By the time I was 27 years old, my firm sent me over to London where I helped them open up an office and I was running around London talking to banks, institutional firms, uh, hedge funds, broker dealers, um, selling all the financial products for my firm. So that was, it was a great, it was a great opportunity. And once again, they offered it to me and I said, yes, I said, hell yes, right. exactly what I wanted to do is to go back, you know, and travel and go back a little bit to my roots, even though it was in Asia, I wanted to be there and travel around and have that opportunity. And it was, that was a big yes for me.
0: Well, you know, it's that intestinal fortitude, right? Wayne Gretzky said, you miss hundred percent of the shots you never take. Success, 90% of success is showing up. And so when you see the opportunity, you've seen enough of these and you go, yes, I'll take it. Yes, I'll, you know, you don't necessarily have to understand how, why, whatever, just, yes, and figure it out as you go, right? Exactly. I mean, that's incredible energy. That's incredible intestinal fortitude. You know, now, Carolyn, you know, as you've gotten older, you got married to somebody. Yes. And uh, yeah. tragically, he was taken from us, right? And taken yeah. from you yeah. a few years ago. You're raising three beautiful children on your own now, right? Yeah. And very involved on a philanthropic level. In a question I have is, A, how do you do it, right? I mean, you're raising three kids. You're obviously, you're involved in so many different charities, you're investing in, uh, in businesses. You're on the board of advisors for, I mean, I, the demonstration you gave to me on VPO was just outstanding. I mean, it's crazy. Awesome. You're a part of we forum. Yes. How do you, how do you balance your day? How do you balance your life? How do you go? You know what? I just, you ever just hit the wall and go, Oh God, I just need Netflix and a bottle of wine.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Whew, slow down. I, I wouldn't be normal if I did. Behind closed doors, I'm constantly like pulling <laughs> yeah. my hair out and getting frustrated with my children. But yes, let's see. Tragically, my husband was taken away from me. He tragically passed away almost four years ago, about three and a half years ago, actually. That was the most devastating moment of my entire life. I mean, he was my best friend, my soulmate. He was the best father. The best human being. He is so well known on Wall Street. He's, he's known as the grandfather of electronic trading. He set up a company called Sennahill Partners, which is a fintech firm, which he was so cutting edge and ahead of his time in terms of financial technology. He was one of early investors in a company called Symbiont, which is a blockchain company. I mean, this is going back like six, seven years ago when people didn't even know what blockchain was. He was an early investor through his company um, in Trinomi. Trinomi is a company that protects data. Once again, you know, data, blockchain, those are fintech, those are big words now, but my husband was doing this back in 2012 and 2013. I mean, he just had unbelievable vision. So I I just wanted to say something about him and, and what an incredible father he was to be so present every day. You know, there wasn't a day that would go by where he didn't tuck his children into bed and say goodnight to them. And he was family man first and foremost, you know, family meant everything. And there's one thing that he said to me, or actually he says to everybody. And that is, you don't go after the money. You go after what you love, because if you love what you do, you know, everything else will fall into place. And, um, you know, I really, I really believe that. I believe that if you can find something that you truly love, that comes from your heart and that you're passionate about, you know, you can find a way to make money. You know, earning a living, and I'll never forget that. So, um, in terms of my kids, and you know, I just woke up one day. I, I think I sat in my chair and watched the paint peel off the walls for about six months. I'll be honest with you. I just, I was so shocked and so traumatized by what had happened because it literally took us all by surprise. One minute we were, you know, up in Vermont skiing, and the next minute I was following a hearse home. You know. Six hours in a snowstorm bringing my husband home, and it was just so surreal. I think what kicked in at that moment, first and foremost, was I was in survival mode, and I just needed to sort of check the boxes and make sure that I was doing everything. But then, as time goes on, there's no option to fail. I have three beautiful children at home I have a, I have a 12, 10, and 8 year old, they were eight, six, and four at the time. And there was absolutely no option to fail. I, I have no option to fail, and so everything that I do, I do for them. You know, I take care of them. I, I, mean, they're they're my first priority in life. So it's all about. All the decisions that I make evolve around them, and that's partly how we you know, came to be. Actually, is because of my own personal journey um, with my own health and the health of my children, and that's how we got started. So, anyways, there was no option to fail in terms of how I do it, but. I do have people who come in and, and they do help me. So I can't say that I do it by myself because that would not be accurate. But I'm, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Um, I wouldn't be myself if I didn't get up every day and have a job or work to do. And that is just my personality. I don't know what else to say other than I need to work. It actually fuels my soul. It ignites me. If I'm not working, I feel like I'm not contributing and I really need to feel like I am contributing and moving forward and progressing from a personal level. And if I don't have that, then I cannot be a good mother to my kids. I wow. I, I, I have less to offer and I, I need that for myself. And so, I don't know, call it a little bit selfish. I guess maybe, maybe some people would say it so, but there was a time where I had many people judge because I I don't have to work. I'm fortunate enough to where I don't have to work, but I had a lot of people who were looking at me and judging me and saying, you know, why are you doing all of that? And I stopped feeling ashamed for wanting to work just because I don't have to work. I stopped being ashamed because this is what I want to do. And so I do. That's how everybody has. Yeah, it's
0: a beautiful thing. Everybody has a purpose, right? Everyone wants to feel needed. I mean, yes. It's a very difficult job. I think being a single mother, it's the most difficult job on the planet. It's the most underrated and most difficult job on the planet. And the fact you're raising three kids. And also, I just want to say, acknowledge you for sharing this situation with your husband and how deeply you love each other and, and you know, being vulnerable about that. It's, it's clear that based on what you just said, that your, your children have a, an incredible, positive male role model in their life. Just on the little things that he did, those, those things will never leave them, right? And yes. that instilling in them is amazing. And you, you know, obviously showing them that, yes, you don't need to work. OK, and maybe they don't need to work, Whoever, you know, but but to, to participate in society, to be a part of the community, to be part of whatever it is you're doing. Yes, you're working. And, and I have the, the distinct pleasure of getting to work with you, you know, in our group. And I see your work ethic. It's crazy good. It's crazy efficient. So I'm blessed. Thank you for that. You know, that whatever Synchro Destiny brought us together, I truly, truly blessed and truly appreciate it. And you're involved in so many different organizations, again, from a philanthropic standpoint, when you decide to pick something to work with, because I'm sure people are calling you all the time. Oh, help me, help me, help me get involved with this, get involved. You know, if you want something done, ask a busy person, right? Because they never say no. (laughs) So how do you decide? Like somebody comes to you and says, you know what, this is really where I want you to spend your time and money, Carolyn. How do you know? How do you know when something, what resonates with you there you go. I for have be part of yes, this.
1: Sure. So for me personally, I had an experience working with an organization, which was one of the largest charitable organizations in New York City. And that was sort of my training ground. Um, when I had come back from London, I was about 30 years old and I worked for the junior league in, in New York City. And I was a volunteer there. I think they have 250,000 volunteers and the New York City chapter was the largest by far of 2,500 members. It was a well-oiled machine. It ran like a corporation. It was amazing. And that's where I, I learned how to be a good volunteer. I learned you know, by watching. What I did realize at that moment, though, is I really wanted to work with more grassroots organizations. While those organizations do such amazing work, there's so much that they do to impact the community. I realized that I wanted to let them do that work in that way, but I wanted to find a smaller organization where I could provide more of my skill set, more of my background, and what I could bring to the table and be even more helpful to the smaller organization. And so that's how I got connected with the 52nd Street Project, which is an organization in Hell's Kitchen in New York City where they teach kids life lessons through theater based programming. And so for me, that was extremely important. I helped them do a lot of fundraising, some strategic planning, and that, and there it is right there is connecting my theater background back into my current life. And that was sort of the draw for me there. When I moved to Rumson with my husband, I then was offered the opportunity to do some fundraising events. And that's when I came across Monmouth Medical Center. And I said to them, "You know, you really don't need another person to run a huge gala for you or a tennis, you know, a tennis outing or a golf outing. You have lots of people who do that so well for you already. Let me think of something else." And at the time, I had just had my third child, or I was about to have my third child. I was about to be forty years old. Actually, I worked with them much sooner than this. And I said to myself, "There's so much about my health that I do not know." I'm spending so much time taking care of my pre-pregnancy body, my pregnancy body, my post-pregnancy body, then taking care of these little babies and really knowing like what to give them, what to offer them, the lotions, the food, the labeling. And and it just, it's so confusing and exhausting that I just don't know how, if you're working two jobs and you have three children and you're a single mother, how do you sift through all this information and really like say, okay, this is what I'm going to do because this is right. And this is right. And no, this is wrong. I'm not going to do that. It's just not enough time. And okay. so I said, look, there's so much about my own health that I don't know. Why don't we have a day where we can bring in clinicians, you know, doctors, experts, holistic experts, anybody in the expert in their field and offer a day for women to answer all of their questions in one day. You know, oftentimes we have to do research and we've got to go visit a doctor who has time for that. And so that's how I came up with WeForum. forum. It's a women's education forum. And we started out by having a conference, a health and wellness conference for women. And our first one was 40 speakers over 100 vendors and over 600 attendees the first time. And what I did was I brought my Wall Street background of attending hedge fund conferences and brought that to the charitable world. So this entire conference, all the money that we raised went towards Monmouth Medical Center, went towards the free programs and services that they offer that are free for their entire community. And that's where I wanted to be and the focus was on health and women. And the reason why we focus on women is because 80% of all of the decisions that are made in a household when it comes to health come from a woman. I wish it was 50-50. I want it to be 50-50, but unfortunately today the stat is 80%. So that's how we WeForum got started. We had our second conference in 2018. It was called Eat for Life, How the Power of Food Can Heal Your Body. And that was all about the food, your biodynamics, your DNA, your gut, how what we put into our body actually affects our food. And we had some fantastic speakers at that event. So that's how I really am fueled by what I want to learn about. I'm fueled about my own personal journey. And when I'm fueled by that, I want to offer what I'm learning, you know, to other people. So that's how we form sort of grew is out of my own personal journey. Yeah. So that's how that's how I think that I connect with organizations is by feeling what I think I need either for my family or from my children and hoping that other people, not hoping, but recognizing that other people in the community might need the same things. And if they do, let's figure out how to offer it to them in a simple, streamlined manner that is efficient and easy for people to act, have access to.
0: That's awesome. I mean, basically the core of it is health is wealth, right? Without it, I mean, what are we all doing this for, right? If, again, do what you love and stay healthy doing it. Exactly. You know, pretty much the underlying statement, what I'm hearing anyways, what you're saying, what, what drives you. Carolyn, there's so many different topics I could talk to you about. And I want to have you on the show again, because there's just so many different things that are fascinating about you. So before we drop out, okay, two things. One, I'm going to ask you how people can get a hold of you and how they can be part of reform in the, in the organizations you're part of. But before that, I guess, you know, you're going to give some advice to the, the future crushing it, the next crusher that's out there, right? There's somebody listening right now that's in their 20s or even somebody that's in the next chapter of their life that maybe has said, you know, has something tragic, right? They lose their spouse or their income goes away. And we're, we're in a pandemic now, right? So people are transitioning and people may have lost their jobs. They may have lost their spouse. They may have th- through divorce. Their children may have moved out, right? Now they're empty nesters. And that feeling of loss, that feeling of, I'm just, I'm not complete, right? Yes. What piece of advice would you give somebody that's in that phase? We'll call it the second act, the next chapter, the midlife opportunity, whatever whatever phrase you want to use for it. What is the piece of advice that you would give somebody and say, "Listen, inside of all of us, we have that crusher mentality. This is what you need to do: tap into these two things, tap into this one thing, and it'll get you through this period of time." What would you say that is?
1: I mean, the first thing that I would say is, listen to the universe. Listen to the universe. I, I really feel that. The universe has been with me the entire time. I feel that my whole entire life was in preparation for this moment to lose my husband. I mean, I don't really think that people really understand how difficult it is to lose someone that you love so much. And had I not had those experiences in my life, I never would have been prepared to then forge ahead. And you have to listen to the universe. And I think that people spend too much time over-preparing and overthinking it. And for me, you know, I always say, if I can take myself outside of the grieving moment for a second and think about, you know, we're constantly having a meeting to have a meeting, to talk about the meeting that we had, to discuss what we read, to have a meeting, to have another meeting, to have a plan, to strategically come up with a meeting, to have a plan so that we can have a plan to move forward. <laughs> right? And
0: another meeting, of course. And to have another meeting. Well, yes. And
1: I I spoke in front of a bunch of students once, and I said, stop having those meetings. You know, keep it simple, right? Keep it simple and just start executing. You know, come up with a couple of ideas and start just executing. And if it doesn't work, move on. Go to the next thing. I think that you'll find that you'll you'll, you'll actually get to where you want to be so much faster if you just execute and if you just do. I'm not saying that you there's no preparation and I'm not saying that you don't you shouldn't, you know, be prepared for, you know, a particular project or a plan that you have. I'm just saying you don't have to over prepare and overthink it. You know, the universe is giving you opportunities. You have to recognize those opportunities and you just have to take that step forward. You have to eliminate the fear. Fear should not be something that exists, you know, in our mindset. And if we can eliminate the fear, then we can eliminate the fact that if we fail, we can keep moving because failure means nothing. It just means that I tried and didn't work. I have to come up with another plan. So therefore, I'm going to come up with another plan. So I think that my moment, you know, in losing my husband and, and, and what advice I would give is just listen to the universe. Don't overthink it. Keep it simple. Don't overprepare, and just try it. You know, if someone is offering you something, what do you have to lose? You know, if you have nothing else going on that you don't like doing, you know, try it and then you might find that you like it. You never know. But if it's being offered to you, it's being offered to you for a reason. And you have to recognize why those opportunities come and why it's being offered to you, for what reason you might not know yet. But if you don't take that step and take that chance, you'll never know.
0: To expand on that answer just a little bit, I, I believe the universe, and feel free to chime in on I feel the universe is what's listening in your heart, right? yes say in our head we're dead right i mean the head will screw us up and send us in the wrong directions and keep us from doing all the things that we know are beautiful but universe another word for it i guess and so you break it down to something that may be even more palatable to people is is your heart-centered gut feeling your spirituality whatever it is the higher power that calls you and says do this correct that's what you're listening to, right? That, that's what you're right. tapping
1: into. That's right. It's your gut. It's also your gut. And so I think for me, when I say I'm lucky, I say, you know, I'm lucky because I listen to my gut. I listen to my gut. I listen to what, you know, the universe was there and I, and I listened to my belly and my gut and I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. But you're absolutely right. It's that, that inner instinct that we all have and your gut. And so absolutely without question.
0: Well, thanks for listening to your gut and being on my show today. Yeah, I appreciate you, you saying yes nice to that. Run. Hey, uh, hey, this is this is fun, right? I mean, we just kind of go as it goes and figure out how it's going. And by the way, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to speak to that buddy of yours, the owner of the Tampa Bay Rays. Tell him that the place he's having games at in St. Pete sucks. <laughs> Move the team to Tampa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're, I will tell him that. You know that they kind of deal with Montreal, right?
0: Yes, I heard that. Yes, I heard that rumor. And you know what? Good, no, good for sure them. Did. Good, for I them. Did. good for them to move the team. That's, you know, that's what the city needs. All right? no, I
1: think what they're doing <laughs> is they're going to make more money by moving the club to Montreal. You'll have double the fans. You'll have fans in Tampa. You'll have fans in Montreal. It'll be great. It'll be. I think, I think you're going to start to see that baseball is going to move in that direction. You have, we have so many empty stadiums across the nation. Just watch. You're going to start like New York Yankees are going to partner with some little, you know, stadium somewhere, and they're going to create fans in the middle of, you know, some other state. And I I, I think it's, I think that's going to be a way of the future.
0: You know, a Boston guy, right? So. Oh my God.
1: Wait, stop. Don't talk about Tom Brady. I can't even go there. (laughs) Are you so excited that he's a Buccaneer now?
0: I have to admit that I am a season ticket holder now to the Buccaneers, even though I can't go see any of the games, although he was atrocious yesterday. The Bucks terrible. were the Bucks, they were terrible yesterday. But the point I wanted to make when you brought up the Yankees emerging with I mean, come on, I'm a Red Sox fan, diehard, okay? The Yankees can go away, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> I and forever. So I don't need them to be kids. bigger than they are. Bye-bye. A fan. <laughs> but they can go to Canada. How about that? Keep the Braves here in Tampa Bay.
1: <laughs> oh boy. I was really thrilled yesterday with Tom Brady's performance. I have to say he deserved he, he deserved it. Sorry.
0: <laughs> uh, well, that's okay. You know, hey. Tom Brady's a, a comeback kid. He is a second quarter, second half, right? So never, never count him out. Never <laughs> count out Brady, right?
1: No, we'll I see.
0: I we will see. Moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn, how can people get a hold of you?
1: You can get a hold of me. They can go to our website, www.weformgroup.org, W-E-F-O-R-U-M, group, dot org. That's our website. You can hit the contact button and contact us that way, or feel free to email, email me at Carolyn C-A-R-O-L-Y-N, dot decena, D-E-S-E-N-A, D-E-S-S-E-N-A, at weformgroup.org. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Thank you beyond from the bottom of my heart. Really. I just, I love talking to you. I love hanging out with you. I love getting to know you and you're a beautiful soul on this planet. You're, you're a crusher. You are an orange energy. You're a contributor. You're a love. You're a beautiful person. Beautiful soul. Thanks for being on the show today.
1: Frank, you're the best. Thank you so much. Really so grateful and honored to, to, you know, that you had me. Carolyn,
0: thanks again. Have an awesome day. Everybody's listening. Stay inspiring and have an amazing, amazing afternoon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Orange Crushing It. Hope you're fired up to take on your week with unstoppable energy. Hey, if you like the broadcast, please subscribe. Share it with your best buds. And please write a badass review. You can also reach me at themrorange.com. Stay inspiring, y'all.